All right, well, last week uh, you probably, because of me, had the assumption that we were done talking about marriage. And, uh, and so I want to apologize. I wasn't looking at my calendar, which most people are not surprised by. I'm not real good with the calendar. And uh, I was thinking that this Sunday was actually coming much later. Uh, we had, because you know what's going on for the adult uh, discipleship hour, we're going to be doing marriage stuff. And we had planned on me kind of doing a overview, a survey of the scriptures in regard to, we might say, the facts, the fundamentals of marriage. And I was just thinking that it was further away. And, uh, but it's not. But I think the timing is perfect because uh, we've been talking about it. Jesus got us going on the conversation. And um, so we're stuck here for a while. Uh, I'm probably going to take about three weeks to do it, so it might take us right up to um, the discipleship time for the adults. Um, so anyway, um, you're stuck. Um, and you know, as you know, if you've been here for a while, kind of the, the, the vision of our church has a lot to do with family discipleship, marriage, children. Um, of course, it has a lot to do with teaching, apologetics, and things of that nature. And so this fits right in with um, you know, what we're trying to accomplish as a church, which we believe really is the vision of God for his people. And um, so I don't mind talking about it. And of course, you guys don't mind talking about it, right? Uh, this isn't going to be a, uh, a topical series. Uh, it's gonna be an, an exposition of the pertinent passages for marriage. Uh, the goal, of course, is to educate uh, even in some cases to re-educate our church in regard to all things marriage. If you were to, um, you know, I guess take a poll or start asking people, even in the context of evangelical, evangelical Christianity, what is marriage? What's the purpose for it? What's God's design for it roles? You're gonna get probably a whole slew of answers that probably resemble much of what's in our culture because we have a tendency to be impacted by the culture that's around us. No Christian wants to admit it. It's just the facts on the ground, okay? So we want to look at this from the scriptures, from God's perspective. Um, when we do this, it doesn't really matter what it is when we teach the scriptures. We are inviting God, hopefully that's our heart, to confront us, to address us, to correct us, uh, to set us back more closely to being in step with God. And um, so that's the whole point of all of this. Um, God invented marriage for his own glory. He did it for our good, as you see on this screen, that we would be heirs together of the grace of life. And uh, so we're gonna be looking at the foundation of marriage in the book of Genesis, okay? Uh, the reason for that is because Jesus uh, points us back to Genesis, right? Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, we'll be continuing in Genesis 3 because we wanna talk about what in the world's wrong with us. Have you noticed there's something wrong with you? You probably just noticed that there was something wrong with your spouse, but there's something wrong with you, okay? So we wanna to go to Genesis three, and uh, then uh, with Genesis coming out of that, we're gonna look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, 1 Peter 3, one through seven, uh, regarding the roles of marriage. Last will be considered 1 Corinthians 7, one through five, is it pertains to intimacy, 
I'll try to make it um, uh, PG for your children. Um, we're gonna visit a few other passages for support, but um, those are the main ones. I went over those pretty fast. Uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. 1 Peter, 1, or 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. This is all necessary as we consider the matter of marriage for many reasons. First, because uh, we're God's people. Uh, it's important that we know what God says about marriage, what he says really about anything. Uh, second, uh, I believe um, that biblical uh, ignorance on the subject abounds. I hope not at Calvary Chapel. Uh, my goal, uh, as I've been inspired by Pastor Chuck, is to have the best taught church and the, the most loved church. That's my goal. That, is that okay? I kind of like that. And then, as we've said already, third, our culture continues to undermine and to mock the sanctity of marriage which impacts us, it impacts our young people, and it has generational effects. And so we wanna do this to um, black, block all that out, those voices, and just hear the voice of God. Now, of course, some in the room might be wondering, uh, you know, why we should be learning about marriage, because you know, you're either not married or you're happily married. Well, uh, all of God's people, I believe should be informed about marriage because it is the most important institution uh, of God. It's the most foundational to humanity. And uh, we should all be informed because you as an individual, whether you're married or single, you might be called to correct someone who is married that's in violation of scripture. You may need to counsel a friend who's preparing for marriage, who's struggling in marriage. Um, some of the unmarried people in this room are hoping to be married someday. You need to be informed of uh, your purpose, of your role for marriage, and what to look for in a spouse, okay? Um, this is good. Jesus actually introduced the subject. The scriptures are full of it, and uh, we wanna take a closer look at it. Now, I will warn you um, that, I guess so that you can brace yourself, um, if you thought that divorce and remarriage was controversial in the church, it's nothing compared to what the scriptures say and what they prescribe for marriage, especially when it comes to the roles. Uh, simply because we have been so impacted by our culture and we're all broken by sin. Our culture has systematically exalted feminism and they've effectively emasculated our men so that when the biblical roles are presented, uh, the women are offended, and the men are not up for the task. Okay? Our culture, feminism, and wimpy men are some of the greatest enemies of a godly marriage. And I don't mind confronting them, I have to. But perhaps the greatest enemy of marriage, as we find it in the scriptures, are pastors, to be honest with you, who spend most of their time you know, softening the language of scripture to make it more palatable and more acceptable to Western culture and human nature. Their, their desire to be liked and to not be uh, offensive uh, has caused them to really change the scriptures and what they say in regard to marriage so that when they're done talking about the subject, you can hardly tell that they got their ideas from the Bible. Okay, how many guys have heard sermons where they quote a passage and then by the time they're done, you're not sure what they were talking about. 
that's very common. And uh, I believe it's killing our marriages, our society. It's draining the church of its witness. And um, so I say that to prepare you because I'm going to teach what the Bible teaches about marriage. I'm going to defend it um, as much as I can because I know that God didn't get it wrong. I know that, okay? So um, I'm not out to offend anybody. I never seek to offend, um, but some will be because that's just what God's word does. And um, so I pray, as always, that you're uh, mature enough to come talk to me, uh, to help discuss and you know, come to more clarity. Um, but always, the, the goal in all of this is to be conformed to God, to his word, and uh, that he would be glorified and that um, we could be more useful to him and a blessing to others, okay? All right, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. If you have anything to throw at me, um, lock it up in your purse. Well, I mean, Uh your husband might need to put stuff in your purse. (laughs) Husbands have no business looking in a woman's purse. I just, my wife says, it's in my purse. (laughs) I ain't going there. So here's your purse. (laughs) Yeah. Lord Jesus, we love you. Um, You say that um, if you love me, you'll obey me. Our obedience is a demonstration of our love for you. Lord, when we come to the scriptures, we confess that it is all things pertaining to life and godliness that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, that your word is true, it's good. And Lord, you created marriage, you invented it, you designed it. And Lord, it is for your glory and it's for our good. And especially when we live according to the instruction that you've given us. So I pray, Lord, that as we approach the subject that you would give us uh, humble hearts to receive whatever it is you say. I pray that you grant me grace, Lord, to accurately represent what you meant by what you said. And uh, Lord, I pray that this would prove to be a benefit to all of us as we look again at what your word says about marriage. So... Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Couldn't be seated. All right, so from the passages that I mentioned um, that we'll examine, we're going to be exploring uh, these things, God's design for our marriage, uh, God's purpose for our marriage, our responsibilities uh, in marriage, and our roles in marriage. I won't get to all these today. Uh, I'll probably just get to the first uh, three and... uh, and then we'll spend the rest of our time looking at roles and how to execute them. You guys ready? All right. God's design for marriage. As I have on the screen there, God's design for marriage communicates his will for marriage. In in scripture, when uh, we consider the concept of design, it it, it takes us back, of course, to Genesis uh, 1 through 2 in the beginning. When God created the world, everything in it, Uh, When Jesus wants to uh, talk about God's design for marriage, he too, in in Matthew 19, he took us back to Genesis. Uh, We've talked about 
I talked about that a couple weeks ago, that Jesus and the apostles, when it comes to establishing final authority on issues of theology and doctrine, uh, they typically take us back to Genesis. There's multiple examples of that in the scriptures. And uh, so all of God's design, and this is what's unique to God's design, is that it took place before sin was in the world and before sin was in us. That's important, okay? The world was perfect. It was exactly as God wanted it for his glory and for our good. You know, imagine a world, if you can, where there's no selfishness, no pride, no malice or ill intent. You know, I saw a guy wearing a shirt the other day that said, I I dream of a world where no one questions a chicken's motives for crossing the road. I thought, that. That's pretty good. You know, there, then at that time, there was no reason to doubt someone's motives because everyone's motives were pure and no one had it in them to question motives. And so it was in this environment that God placed all that he designed. He designed it there and for that. And the interesting thing about design is that it, it communicates the designer's intent. That is his desire, his will for what he's designed, uh, this Truth is known intuitively, even regarding marriage itself. So when it comes to marriage, not only does God's design of it communicate his will, it also communicates his permanent will. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 19 when he referred back to Genesis, okay? So uh, his intent, his will is established in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Thousands of years later, Jesus looks back and says, that's still the case. And Paul in Ephesians 5, he looks back and says, that's still the case. And we need to continue with that. We need to look back and say, that's still the case. It's still the way God wants it, okay? Yeah, God's will for marriage has not changed at all from the beginning. And quite simply because he got it right the first time. Now, we have to talk about sin. Sin came into the world. Uh, Sin did not change God's will for marriage. It just made it a lot more difficult for us to accomplish it, okay? So it's in the beginning we have to go in order to get it right. Genesis 1.27 talks about God's design. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the passage describes how God designed us, okay? Uh, It doesn't tell us to do anything, does it? Okay, God doesn't prescribe anything or command us to do anything. The the passage simply tells us what God did by design. God created mankind in his image and he created us in two genders, male and female. Uh, If you go to culture to ask them about gender, are you gonna get two genders? No, you're gonna get, who knows, how many genders? Okay, and then in Genesis 2.24, it says, therefore, Uh, Remember, this is exactly what Jesus did. He went to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. He crammed them together. He says, for this reason. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I actually prefer the King James because it says leave and cleave. I just like the rhyming. Is that fair? Shall leave, father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. So the passage describes what a man shall do, and what the result will be. He will leave and cleave and become one flesh with his wife. This passage also doesn't tell us 
What a man should do, God doesn't prescribe any action for the man. The passage only tells us what a man will do. Uh, This is the difference between uh, description and prescription, a fact versus a command. In, In grammar, this is called the distinction between indicative, which is a fact, and the imperative, which is a command. These two passages, the first from Genesis 1 and this one here from Genesis 2, they're both descriptive in nature of design. They're not prescriptive. There are no commands. The author is just telling us what God did when he created us and what man will do as a result of how he was created. Well, so what? You know, who cares? Well, when Jesus quoted these two passages in Matthew 19, he demonstrates that God's will is communicated or revealed by that specific design. Jesus takes those descriptive passages and demonstrates that they have always been imperative. It's very interesting. So the divine will was communicated in God's design. Jesus says this, have you not read, of course he was speaking to the Pharisees, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for that or this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The description, the indicative becomes an imperative. The facts stated become commandments. Jesus said that God made them, that is, he designed them male and female. Why? For this reason, he says, that is with the intent According to God's will, a man shall leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two should become one flesh. God designed us to be married, to be joined as one flesh. Now, of course, since the advent of sin, there are exceptions to that. Okay, when we're all done with this series, we'll go back to that from Matthew 19, because Jesus mentions those exceptions. They're not here yet, because there's no, the world hasn't become what it is now, okay, so God designed us to be married, to be joined as one flesh, and so Jesus concludes, he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God's design communicates his will. God created man and a woman for a purpose, the purpose is to be married, and because Jesus quotes the passage in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and Paul does in Ephesians 5, God's will at the beginning for marriage is his will for all time. What God does first has precedence, okay? And that's gonna actually be something that we carry all the way through our discussion on marriage. What God does first has precedence, okay? All right, Um, let's turn to the purpose of marriage. God's purpose for our marriage, to display God's image and to dispel our loneliness. To display God's image and to dispel our Loneliness, because marriage is by design, it has purpose, God intended something by it, he wanted to accomplish something through it. Biblically speaking, there are two purposes for marriage that I can find in scripture, okay? There there are a number of responsibilities of marriage that are often confused for purpose, but from the scriptures, I can only find two purposes, okay? The first and primary for marriage has to do with God's image. You know, why in the world did he create us in his, in his image? Well, it, it happens to be that he wants us to put his image on display. 
for the sake of the other, okay? The second purpose for our marriage has to do with our spouse. We uh, like the first as well. One, the primary one it has to do with God's glory as well, but we're designed to dispel our spouse's loneliness. That is the purpose for marriage is relationship. Relationship, okay? Let's look closer at the primary purpose from Genesis 1. We're gonna be Genesis a lot, okay? Then God said, let us make man our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women alike were created in the image of God. Man being a masculine representation of God's image and women a feminine representation of God's image. Aren't you thankful? I'm thankful. Now, the image of God, of course, is not a, a physical, visible image. For God, he's pure spirit, okay? Jesus says that, God is spirit. Uh, he has no parts at all. He is pure spirit. He's completely immaterial. His image, as far as you know, what can be communicated to us, speaks of things that are true about God that he can share with us. We call these the communicable attributes of God, those attributes that he can actually impart to us. Now, of course, not all the attributes of God, not all of his characteristics can be shared with us. How many of you guys are infinite? Okay, so we can't share in his infinitude, okay? Uh, We're not immutable like God. We cannot, for a moment, avoid change, okay? We're subject to change, God is not. We're not timeless. I look around the room, that's obvious, okay? We're not transcendent, okay? You're all here, you're all present. Uh, You're not beyond anyone else, okay? But God is, and he's both transcendent and he's imminent. He's beyond us and he's near us. We can't pull that off, okay? But there are a number of characteristics, attributes of God that he shares with us. And now, of course, we don't have those attributes to the extent that he does, okay? but we can show them in our life. So God is moral, amen? God is holy, and he says we're to be holy, right? So we can and should be moral, and because we should, we're going to be held accountable to a moral standard. God is rational and intelligent, so we can and should be rational and intelligent. Christians should be the best thinkers on the planet. God is loving, so we can and should be loving. God is just, we should, therefore exercise justice. God is merciful, we should show mercy. God is creative, wise, and a host of other things that we can emulate. All these things are possible for us and not for the animal kingdom because we were created in the image of God. They were not, okay? People say, well, spiders spin webs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're like a computer. Uh, that information and how-to was downloaded into them by the creator. Nobody trained them. They just execute by nature. So all spiders of the same species, you know, they make the same web. Crazy, huh? And nobody trained them. It's just they were designed that way. They don't even really have a choice. They do what they do by nature, okay? Now, this whole thing about the image of God in male and female as we look at the creation narrative, it's in the context of marriage. You, you can never remove marriage from the context of the creation narrative. It gets the primary focus from God. It does, okay? We, yes, of course, it, 
it's the creation of time, space, and matter, but the primary focus of creation is the creation of Adam and Eve in God's image and how he brings them together in marriage. That's the story, okay? He fashioned them in his image to be like him, to each other and for each other, to exude his likeness, his character to one another in ways that are appropriate for each. Exuding his character to one another in their interactions with each other. How are you doing with that? The way that we talk to each other, the way that we serve one another, the way that we talk about each other, the way that we think about the other. We were created by God to be like him for the sake of our spouse, to reflect, to display his image to them. We must strive to that. It's our purpose, to be like God to our spouse. We should be able to say as individuals, I was specifically designed by God to represent him to my wife, to my husband, to be God's ambassador to her, to him, to be like God to her as a husband, to him as, I'm getting that all backwards, but you guys get it. I was created that way for my wife. My wife was created that way for me. That's our our primary purpose, yeah. Now, I've known spouses who thought they were called to be God to their spouse rather than be like God in their marriage. But when they do that, they really fail to be like God and they just dominate their spouses, which is really not like God, okay? No one's role in the marriage is to be God to anyone else. We've been created to exude his character to others, okay? Primary to, primarily to our spouse. Of course, to the whole world, but first at home. In the New Testament, um, you know, the character of God is described to us in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we are able to exude that fruit as we walk in the Spirit. Amen? And when we do that, it's called the process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ. Okay, so sin uh, effaced the image of God in us. Did not erase, but effaced it. And through redemption by the Holy Spirit, he's trying to bring us back to that image. He's trying to do that for the sake of our marriage, for the sake of our parenting, and for the redemption of the whole world. Nothing has changed from the beginning, has it? Now, we we mess things up with sin, but God says, okay, well, I'm still gonna get my way. I'm still gonna conform my people to my image, okay? Nothing's changed. You can also turn to 1 Corinthians 13, Read about the characteristics of love, all of which come from God. God, by nature, is love, okay? So that's, that's the purpose here, displaying his character to our spouse. It's not something we always do well. Certainly nothing you will do perfectly in this life, but this is God's stated purpose. What about the second purpose for a marriage? I love this one as well, which is to dispel loneliness. Now, this initially comes out in Genesis 2, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, if you haven't been paying, and we didn't read through Genesis 1, but all of it, but if, if you're not paying close attention to what happens in Genesis 1, this statement uh, doesn't come across as startling. 
but it actually is in the creation narrative, okay? Adam was formed first by design, which we're gonna visit a lot next Sunday. So Adam was created first, and he was alone, and God said that it was not good. That expression, not good, is a break from his pattern, of, of God's pattern, up to this point in the creation narrative. At the end of day one, what did God say? He looked at all, of his, all that he created that day in an environment where there's no sin or corruption, and he said, that's good. That is, I do really good work, okay? It's the best, it's perfect. The end of the second, third, fourth, fifth day, it's good. Each day he said, it's good. But something during the sixth day, God said that something was not good. It's not good that Adam should be what? Everything else was good but this. Adam was alone, it's not good. So how did God intend to dispel Adam's loneliness? By creating a helper for him. The text says a helper comparable to him, which means a helper who is opposite of him. The helper would be the opposite sex, and as we all know in this room, okay, very different in many other ways than Adam. But all of those differences are good because God created them that way in the beginning. Now sin has messed both of us up and our differences, but at the beginning, all of those differences were holy, they were pure, they were perfect, okay? So God's stated purpose for marriage is to dispel loneliness, and he does that by relationship, and that relationship is marriage. You know, really, a, a theological thing we can get into maybe later, but why is it not good that Adam be alone? Because God is not alone. He's been in perfect harmony for all eternity in the Trinity. And so when we come to 2.24, we have a plurality, like a God, that becomes a unity. You get it? Okay, so God's stated purpose for marriage is to dispel loneliness. He does that by relationship, and that relationship is marriage. As 2.24 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they, that is the two, the plurality, shall become one flesh. It's great. In order for marriage to honor God's design, it must be a separate and distinct relationship that is completely autonomous from other relationships, specifically from parents, even to their disdain sometimes, but that's what the text points out. This relationship of one flesh, listen carefully, called marriage is an end in itself as far as God's purpose is concerned. This is the conclusion that God comes to at the end of the creation narrative. That's the conclusion he comes to. Do you know what he says at the end of the sixth day after Eve has been created and the two have come together in one flesh, just the two of them? He doesn't say it's good. He says it's very good. What I have made according to my image is the best. It's very good. Genesis 1.31. Don't you like that? Yeah. Very good. The secondary purpose for marriage is to dispel our loneliness by a one flesh relationship. I've been specifically designed, I have been specifically designed for the purpose of dispelling Shandy's loneliness. Designed. But if I am absent, if I am distant, cold, indifferent, taking my wife for granted, 
if I'm self-absorbed, disinterested, distracted by people or things, I have forsaken my purpose and I've invited, I've promoted loneliness in my marriage. But if by my actions and by my words, I'm demonstrating that she is my primary interest, that I am shandy focused and shandy interested, I am fulfilling my purpose. I will be eradicating loneliness from our lives and I will be establishing relationship. It amazes me how two people in a marriage can be lonely. It's sad, really, isn't it? That's not the purpose they got married. That wasn't their intent, but over time it came to that. And when there is loneliness, it is always because one or both are failing to fulfill their primary purpose. And if they're failing to fulfill their secondary purpose, it's because they've forsaken the primary one. They're, they're integrated. If we are being godly to our spouse, we will be banishing their loneliness. We will be. If we're representing God to them, if we're displaying the character of God to them, we will be actively dispelling their loneliness. You know, if we're to dispel their loneliness, we gotta put the work in. Adam and Eve had it real easy. They didn't have a sin nature. But as your spouse can testify, <laughs> you broken, okay? You gotta put the work in. We must do the research. We have to ask questions. We must explore and experiment in order to discover how it is that our spouse is endeared to us, how they experience belonging, intimacy, and fellowship, how it is that you can relate to them for their sake. You know, too often we think that our spouse thinks like we think, that they feel love the way that we feel love, experience love the way we experience love wants what we wanted. Have you ever gotten your spouse a gift that you actually wanted? <laughs> We're just so different. You know, from one personality to another, and then you throw in gender, you know, men and women. They, they're different by nature in so many ways. You know, if you want to know how to cherish your wife and make her feel wanted and loved, you should probably ask her. You know, as a man, uh, you will likely miss the mark if you haven't done some research. Is that true, wives? Okay. If you want to know how to love and respect your husband, you should probably ask him. Okay. And as a woman, you'll likely miss the mark if you haven't done your research. You know, working with couples over the years, I'm always amazed that wives think that their husband wants what they want, and men think the same thing about their wives. And, and then when they don't receive it, they get frustrated. So you hear men a lot say, I just don't get it. I don't understand her. Probably not, okay? But, you know, asking questions, it's called communication, which it appears that many couples are unfamiliar with, but you don't have to speak Greek to do it. English is just fine, but you have to do it, okay? And when you're asking your spouse questions about them, they need to speak up. Understand, spouses? You gotta speak up. And when they don't speak up, you need to observe. You need to study them carefully. This is where stalking is legal and permissible, okay? Because <laughs> you want to be able to identify what makes them tick. Because some people can't voice certain things, but those things are observable, okay? Things that bring them joy, you know, what hurts them, what makes them come alive, okay? We don't do this to accommodate, you know, sinful behavior or to enable ungodly habits, but to foster that which draws us together till loneliness becomes extinct. 
Peter says that God's will for marriage is that we would be heirs together of the grace of life. You know, but some know marriage as hell on earth. But then there's others who would almost, who would almost delay the coming of Christ because they so love being married to one another. Those couples who strive to represent Christ to each other, who make it their aim to dispel the other's loneliness, they're the true heirs of the grace of life. Marriage will make you or break you, okay? If you don't have that kind of marriage where you're almost wanting to delay the coming of Christ, um, if you're not experiencing that, it's time to go after it with all you got. God's purpose can be revealed in your marriage. You can be heirs together of the grace of life, but you have to do it his way. There's nothing really more fulfilling than living with someone according to your purpose. Now, some of you may be expecting me to say that uh, there's a third purpose for marriage um, and that it's bearing children. I actually don't believe that because the scriptures don't come out and say it. Um, The Catholic Church has held that position throughout the centuries. Some Protestants hold that position. I can't find it in scripture. Uh, Bearing children, as we'll see, is a responsibility of marriage and one of the most important and blessed responsibilities, but responsibilities not to be confused with purpose. Okay, if the purpose for marriage is procreation, what purpose is there for a marriage that is unable to have children? I've worked with a number of couples that can't have children, it's devastating. And if they hold to that theology that the purpose for marriage is procreation, where does that leave them? Where does that leave them? And if procreation is the purpose for marriage, what purpose is there for marriage once the children move out? You know that divorce among empty nesters is a huge problem in America. And I believe that one of the reasons in working with many of these couples is that when the children leave, that was their purpose, rather than relationship, rather than them as an end in themselves. You understand? So once the kids leave, who are you and what am I doing here? Happens all the time. You know, if we can't fulfill our responsibility by having children, it doesn't stop us from fulfilling our purpose. If children are a blessing from the Lord, I believe that. But procreation's not the purpose for our marriage. And I believe, as I've experienced in working with couples, if we reduce our marriage to its responsibilities, we'll only experience drudgery and sadness. That's the end result. But as the text on the screen shows, and as Jesus says in Matthew 19, becoming one flesh is an end in itself. As we've said, after Eve was created and she was made one flesh with Adam, before children came along, God said, that is very good. That is very good. Okay. And that leads me to the responsibilities of marriage. How's my time? Okay. You doing okay? All right. Again, in Genesis 1, okay, the responsibilities come out in the imperative form. These are commands prescribed for marriage. They are these, procreation and dominion. Procreation and dominion. Let's talk about procreation. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion. Have dominion. But procreation. Okay, this can get controversial. I don't care. For God's people who are physically able to have babies, this is not left as an option. God commands his people to have babies. 
It's also stated in the new covenant. Okay, so it's not like a creation thing, we set it aside, or it's a law of Moses thing, we set it aside. No, it's, it's God's, he's, he's, all of his people are supposed to do this. Okay. Now for those who cannot have babies, they're exempt, they're an exception to the rule. Okay. When, you know, God doesn't require to bear children if you are unable. And some people, as you know, are truly unable to have children. And it's no fault of their own, okay? Sin has left its mark on all of us, both physically and spiritually. But there are others who have sinned and made it so they could never have babies, okay? And now it's too late. Well, now what? I've, I've met these people. I've worked with them. Um, most scripture would say repent. Acknowledge that you were wrong. God will forgive. He will restore. Okay? It's not the end. Here's a trickier one. If you know that you are unable to have children before you get married, you need to disclose that to your potential spouse because they need an opportunity to take it up with God in prayer to be certain whether or not he would grant them an exception from bearing children by marrying you. And you must grant them the liberty to end the relationship that they might pursue another. That is, if their conscience is not clear about God releasing them from that responsibility. Of course, there's adoption, but that's not the same as bearing children, is it? It's, it's virtuous, it's noble. I think of anybody that should be adopting children in this world, it should be only the church. I hold that strongly. Only the church should be adopting children, okay? God's people. Now, some would say that those who cannot have children are the eunuchs mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 19, and so marriage is not for them. I disagree. If that person is lonely, okay, as a single person, and they desire a spouse, they're not a eunuch. Like Adam, it's not good that they should be alone. God desires for them to be married, okay? So if you happen to be one of those people, you, you cannot have babies, and you know that, and you're afraid that you will be turned away from marriage because of that, you're, you're thinking about the wrong pastor, okay? You're thinking about the wrong pastor. I will perform a marriage if one person cannot have kids, okay? Yeah. Procreation's not the purpose for marriage, so why would God forbid them from being married? The bigger problem, I believe, with the, the procreation mandate, is what we call it, is when people are physically able but don't want children. And, and you've probably heard many of the reasons, okay? It's a product of Western culture and just sin in general. They don't have time. It would ruin their career. They won't be able to travel. They don't want it to affect their body because everything is about my body. They don't make enough money. It would be inconvenience and on it goes. Um, those who are physically able are not exempt. It's just not the case in scripture. They should repent. They should repent of selfishness and then ask God to change their hearts. They should trust God with their finances. Okay, they should restructure their life by making sacrifices and they should put some things on hold or hurry up and get it done. When Shani and I first got married, we weren't counseled to have children. We were counseled to decide for ourselves. Okay? And so for six years, we didn't have kids and we didn't intend on having them until we read Genesis. And then God changed our hearts in regard to it and then it was a race to have as many as we could. Okay? And so Shani was pregnant all through her 30s. Okay? And she's enjoying not being pregnant in her 40s, okay? 
people should obey God. They should, they should have babies. Does this mean that every Christian couple must have children immediately after marriage? Not necessarily, but every Christian couple should weigh their motives and their reasons for why they are delaying. I think there's good reasons to delay. Okay? Not wanting children, though, is not a good reason. Let me finish with this, I gotta hurry. When it comes to the responsibility of having children, some believe in what is called open womb theology. Who, who's heard of open womb theology? Okay, yeah. Uh, it may appear that um, I, I promote open womb theology at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we do not, I do not. Um, I don't adhere to that theology, which essentially teaches that you should have children until you cannot, okay? Now, the reason I don't uh, hold that view is that the scriptures do not state it explicitly, okay? Scripture does not say that we should be fruitful and multiply uh, until we can't, okay? Until we can't. Now, it is debated whether uh, various passages state uh, open womb doctrine implicitly, okay? Now, if that is sufficient reason for you to practice open womb theology, more power to you. Okay, um, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't matter to me, okay? If you're an open womber, I'm not against you. Uh, I, I just disagree. If you uh, hold that position, you attend here, that's your position, please do not impose your view on others. I don't care if you share it, but please don't be forceful with it. Don't make women feel guilty for not doing it, okay? That's happened here before. Uh, don't let it happen anymore. Okay, don't let it happen. Okay, back to our responsibility. Simply put, it's God's will that his people have babies. Is that difficult? And you know, it's fun to try. So, <laughs> just, I mean, that's part of it. Let's move on. <laughs> Save that for 1 Corinthians 7. Dominion. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, Genesis 1.28. Perhaps one of the most forgotten, maybe one of the most avoided or misunderstood responsibilities of marriage is dominion. How many of you guys have been to marriage counseling, marriage retreat, marriage whatever, and dominion came up? Raise your hand. It's right there in the text. And it takes center stage in Genesis chapter two and it continues on all the way through the scriptures. What does it mean? To have dominion means to rule over a domain, whatever that domain is. Here in the text, the domain is the earth, everything in it. God gave the earth to man to have dominion of it. To rule, now, can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. In Genesis two, before sin entered the world, dominion was a good thing. But after sin entered the world, dominion was good and bad, but because of sin, good dominion was always influenced by sin and sinners, okay? As time progressed, and as man populated the earth, God distinguished dominions from one another, and he appointed rulers over each, okay? There is essentially three dominions in scripture, and each have their rulers. The first is the family, the second is society, and the third is the church. We talked about these during COVID, how you guys remember that, okay? Yeah, they're autonomous dominions, and that's why we do not allow the government to interfere with the affairs of our family or our church, okay? 
I was about to say, we'll stay out of your business if you stay out of ours, but we actually have an obligation to be in their business as far as the government's concerned, okay? As we said earlier, what God did in the beginning, he desires for all time. It is still God's will that man have dominion over the earth, but because of sin, we failed and the world came under the dominion of Satan, who's called the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You look out there, you can tell who's in charge of that puppy, right? But in spite of that, God's will remains, just like it does for marriage, okay? He still wants man to rule over the earth, and you know what, he's gonna do that when he returns and imprisons Satan in the bottomless pit. At that time, man, we will rule and reign with Christ over the earth for a thousand years. God will ultimately have it his way. But for now, it's what makes the family domain a God-honoring dominion that we're interested in. The question is, who has what role in the family domain and how are those roles exercised? That's what we'll look at next Sunday. And that's when I get to collide with our culture and the sin nature of everybody in this room, including my own. Fair enough? Okay, I get to be judged by the text just like everyone else. In conclusion, God's design of marriage communicates his will for marriage for all time. Okay, sin is not an excuse to do things differently. Our primary purpose in marriage is to display God's character to our spouse, to be like God for their sake. Our secondary purpose is to dispel our spouse's loneliness, okay? To cause loneliness to become extinct in our marriage. Our Christian responsibilities in marriage are to have babies and have dominion, have dominion. Next week, we'll get into the nitty gritty of marriage as we look at biblical roles. And as you could have guessed, we'll be in Genesis. Okay, go ahead and stand up. Um, As always, if you need prayer, um, there will be people here, the elders and uh, some women to pray with you. If you have questions, if you have comments on the teaching, um, I'm here to chat with you. Uh, If you um, disagree so far, uh, please be mature enough to come talk to me. I can handle disagreement just fine. Um, I challenge you to handle it just fine as well. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we're grateful for your word. Um, it, it's, it's either true or it's, it's all a lie. And we can either enjoy the benefits of obeying your word or we can suffer the consequences for not. Lord, humble us, teach us, conform us to your image that we might be useful for your glory or that we might be a benefit to others, especially our spouse. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.